want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 13 as we continue our series in the book of Revelation. I had the privilege about 15 years ago now of traveling internationally. It was my first international trip um, uh, to North Africa. Uh, I went to a closed Muslim country with uh, a friend, and we went to visit a number of Christian workers who were uh, there serving in that country uh, subversively, like under other pretenses. We went to visit them, to encourage them, and so uh, we traveled there, and uh, one of the families we visited, our host said to uh, my travel companion and, and me, he said that he was going to take us to a haman. I don't know how many of you prefer when you are about to experience something difficult or painful, how many of you like to have a warning, just to be kind of prepared so you can brace yourself and be ready for what you're about to experience. Um, I asked our host, I said, so what is, I remember we were in his van driving there, I said, so uh, tell me, what exactly is a haman? What's this experience going to be? I, I, sorry, he, he had told us it was, it was a North African bathhouse. But I said, so what should we expect? And he said to us, well, it's kind of hard to explain. You'll find out soon enough. I should have been concerned at that point. Uh, we arrived. We went into this place. Uh, my traveling companion and I were both giving given something more like a bed sheet than a towel. We told to undress and wrap that around ourselves. And then we were led into this hot, steamy room with hot pools in which to burn our feet, I mean soak our feet. Uh, we sat there sweating, tr- struggling to breathe the steam. And we, we sat there for a while kind of watching what people do. And, and, uh, and after a few minutes, we were led into this other uh, room. It was a tiled room with several bamboo mats on the, on the floor with buckets next to them. And we were told to sit down on these mats. So we did, really not having a clue what was about to happen. Uh, Several North African men came in at that point, and uh, one lined up behind each of us. And they plunged what looked like an oven mitt, but what felt like an SOS pad, into that bucket of water, slapped my back, and it began. I have never in my life been scrubbed so hard, so thoroughly, uh, over the course of the next uh, number of minutes, I realized I saw this guy picking things off of my skin and putting it in a dish. I couldn't figure out what it was until I realized that's my skin. It was one of the most painful experiences of my life. We finally uh, left that room when he was done and uh, went to another room where we each received a bucket of cold water with which to soothe our aching skin. And then we finally went to another room with beds where we could lay down. I I like to think of it as the recovery room. (laughs) We had no warning, no idea of what we were about to experience. And I don't think I would have chickened out had I known, but it would have been a little easier to take if we had some clue of what we were walking into. The revelation as a whole... And Revelation 13, 1-10 specifically, provides us as God's people with a warning. A warning regarding what we are about to face. 
what we are about to experience, what we are to go, about to go through. Jesus here warns His people, His followers, so that they will be ready, so that they can brace themselves, so that they uh, understand what they are about to walk into. We've been making our way through the book of Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible, literally entitled The Apocalypse, The Unveiling. Jesus here uh, pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real. Uh, in these pages, Jesus enables us to see uh, the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. And he allows us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. And what we've discovered is that there is more going on than we can see with our physical eyes. Last Sunday, we came to Revelation 12. I said the theological center of this book. In chapter 12, uh, Jesus provided John. John shares with us a vision to help us see to see what is happening in the world, a vision to help us see why those who put their faith in Jesus still suffer, even though Jesus is said to have accomplished victory. In Revelation 12, John looks and he sees. First, he sees a woman, a woman dressed unlike any woman we have ever seen, a woman dressed in the sun, standing on the moon with a crown of 12 stars on her head. She is pregnant, about to give birth. He, he looks and he sees also an enormous red dragon who is, is right in front of the woman, ready to devour her child, her son, the moment he is born. John looks and he sees the sun. The son born of the woman. And unlike both the woman and the dragon, uh, who are called signs, that is, both the woman and the dragon point to a reality beyond them. The son is not a sign. The son is reality himself. The son is Jesus, the Messiah. The dragon sought to kill, to devour, but failed to. At every step, he fails. And chapter 12 concludes with the dragon standing on the shore of the sea, filled with rage, prepared to make war against the descendants, the offspring, the seed of the woman, that is, against the church, against believers. The dragon is Satan, and he is filled with rage. He will wage war against those who, as the text said, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Chapter 13 continues the vision that began in chapter 12. I invite you to follow along as I read uh, just verses 1 to 10 this morning. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise its authority for 42 months. 
It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. I want to do three things with you in the time we have together. First, I want us to identify the beast that comes up out of the sea. Second, I want us to consider the warning that Jesus is giving to his followers, to his disciples. And third, we want to reflect together on the implications of this passage of Scripture for our lives today in our context. So first, let's identify the beast from the sea. It is so critical for us as we make our way through the Revelation to remember that the Revelation is not a crystal ball. It does not aim to provide for us a play-by-play of what lies in the future. It is, is not predicting the future. It is, rather, we need to understand it to be a discipleship manual. Uh, the Revelation is written to help disciples of Jesus follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the face of opposition and suffering and even the threat of death. Daryl Johnson writes this, Revelation 13, 1-10 in particular helps us understand why it is so difficult to remain loyal to Jesus Christ. The text helps us see that disciples are up against a power that seeks to keep us from all-out obedience. The dragon, the enormous red dragon that we encountered in chapter 12, John said, was a sign. He identified the dragon explicitly in Revelation 12 as Satan, as the devil, as God's arch enemy, the enemy of all that is good, all that God wants to accomplish. The dragon hates Jesus. The dragon wanted to devour the son of this woman, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, but he failed. And in his failure, he is filled with rage, and he now aims to take it out on those whom are precious to Jesus, those who follow Jesus, those who are his disciples. However, what we discover here is that the dragon does not wage war directly. Rather, he makes use of two agents, two beasts. One, the beast we're meeting today, the beast out of the sea. And two, the beast we will meet next week, the beast out of the earth. The dragon employs these two agents, two beasts. Now, I don't want to get ahead of things, but I do want to highlight something for you because we will begin to notice it already today and we'll see it next week and even through the coming chapters of the Revelation. What we encounter here The dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast that we will encounter next week, the beast from the earth, is a parody of God. An unholy trinity, if you will. The dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. In various ways, we will see that the enemy of God is mimicking God, is a parody of God, the one who sits upon the throne that is above every throne, the lamb who is slain, and the seven spirits. Those are the images that we have encountered in the Revelation to speak of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The enemy of God is dragon, beast from the sea, and beast from the earth. It is a parody, mimicking God, trying to take the place of God. 
And so we will see that fleshed out in various ways as we make our way further into the text. So what did John see in his vision? We read that he saw a dragon. He saw the dragon, the enormous red dragon from chapter 12, standing on the shore of the sea. And John saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, what is Jesus trying to communicate to John? What is Jesus trying to communicate to those first century disciples in the Roman province of Asia? What is Jesus trying to communicate to the church throughout centuries since then? Should we expect that one day we will look, if we are close to the sea, and we will see an actual beast coming up out of the sea? No, of course not. The dragon was a sign, the sign of Satan, God's enemy. The beast likewise is a sign. But a sign of what? Well, let's look at the description that John provides us. We read, It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. We already know from our study thus far of the Revelation that that horns uh, are a symbol for power, that heads are a symbol of authority, that that crowns are a symbol of, of ruling. And so what we have here is Uh, And the number 10 and the number 7 speak of completeness, fullness. This beast has great power, has great authority, and in some way rules. That much is clear. But what are we to make of the fact that each of the beast's heads has a blasphemous name on it? Blasphemous, of course, means to speak against someone in a way as to harm or injure their reputation. You can blaspheme against a person, but certainly it's often used in Scripture in reference to the divine, in reference to God. This beast, in its arrogance, has taken upon itself names that are, as we will shortly see, an affront to God, the one who truly sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. John tells us more. We read on. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. What is that all about? Well, for John, certainly for those of his original readers, it would have immediately reminded them of an Old Testament text. I spoke earlier about how uh, the Revelation is saturated with allusions and references to other biblical texts. Well, back in the the prophet Daniel, Daniel shares with us, he records for us uh, a dream that God gave him. In his dream, he saw four beasts come up out of the sea, one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard. The exact same animal references that we encounter here in Revelation. The fourth beast in Daniel's dream was described by Daniel as terrifying and frightening. It would seem, perhaps, that the beast here, that all of the beasts described by Daniel are rolled up into one here. The beasts in Daniel's dream represented four different kingdoms. Likely the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Mede, and the kingdom of Greece. So what's the point? What is Jesus revealing to John, to us, when John sees a beast coming up out of the sea with the feet of a bear, the face of a lion, sorry, resembling a leopard, feet of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion? What is Jesus revealing to John? The beasts from the sea represent a kingdom. In the past... That beast has been manifested in various kingdoms, various empires. In Daniel's dream, he saw four beasts, one like a lion, one like a leopard, one like a bear, and then a fourth terrifying one. In in the future, 
the beast will be manifested in other human kingdoms to come. In John's presence, the beast from the sea is the empire of Rome. The beast out of the sea, Daryl Johnson writes this, what is the beast out of the sea? It is the state. Human kingdoms that have ejected the living God from the center of their lives. What is being revealed to us is that the dragon goes after the followers of Jesus through dragon-manipulated political powers. Dragon through dragon-manipulated political powers. When through human government. When human government, when human political powers, when the, when the powers that be seek to be God, seek to take the place of God, they in fact become demonic. That is what Jesus is telling us. That is what Jesus is here revealing to us. Now, you might rightly ask, does not the Bible teach us that God has ordained the institution of human government? And the answer, of course, is yes, God has. Satan, the devil, has never created anything. But what Satan does is he takes the good things that God has created and he twists them. He perverts them. Michael Wilcock writes this, As prince of this world, Satan took what God had instituted for mankind's welfare and made it an instrument of oppression. It is God's will that there should be law and order. It is the devil's achievement that there should so often be bad law and tyrannical order. He puts blasphemies in the mouth of the state so that it proclaims, I am God, by demanding from its subjects a total unconditional allegiance. We want to identify this beast from the sea. The beast from the sea is the state, uncoupled from God, in rebellion against God, usurping the place of God. The second thing we wanted to do was consider the warning that Jesus is giving. Let's turn our attention to that. Remember, this is a discipleship manual. Uh, It is about how we are to follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Uh, I already said to you that the dragon and the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth are an unholy trinity, a parody of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are mimicking God. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. There we read, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? What is all of this about, you might ask? Uh, A fatal wound? A fatal wound that proves to not be fatal. A fatal wound that is healed. What are we to make of that? Does that not, in a strange way, seem to echo, mimic Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, who has come back? The whole world is filled with wonder. This fatal wound that is healed causes the whole world to be filled with wonder. They follow the beast and they worship the dragon and the beast. And the world poses the question, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Words that echo words of praise about God throughout the Psalms, throughout the Scripture. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord God Almighty? Who is like our Lord God? Who is like the beast? The world proclaims. Who is like the beast? The inhabitants of the earth worship and marvel at the beast. 
who had a fatal wound that was healed. What we read next unearths what lies at the core of Christ's warning to his disciples. Look what we read here. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The beast, state with God thrown off, utters proud words and blasphemies. It speaks arrogantly against the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. It utters blasphemies against God and it exercises, we read, authority for 42 months. Remember, 42 months is a symbol, not a statistic. We've encountered that already. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. All four of those expressions mean the exact same thing. And they are a symbol for that period of history between Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension and Christ's future return. 42 months. We live in the 42 months. We live in the midst of 1260 days when the inhabitants of the earth will trample on the temple we encountered earlier. Now we read that the beast will have authority for 42 months. This is the period of the church in which we find ourselves. So... John says that the beast from the sea will have authority for 42 months. Is John saying then that Rome will last until Christ returns? No. Remember the fatal wound that proved not to be fatal? The fatal wound that was healed? Well, that would have absolutely brought a very specific legend, we'll call it, to the minds of John and his readers in the first century. The emperor Nero, when he was 32 years old, committed suicide. Rumors began almost immediately that, that Nero, however, was not dead, that one day Nero would come back. In fact, that, that legend grew to mythic proportions so that the other would-be uh, power usurpers actually employed that and said, they came and they said, I'm Nero returned. That, that was a legend that was, was largely uh, known in, in John's day in this period of history. And so when they hear of a wound, a fatal wound, that was healed, they would have thought of this legend about Nero. What's the significance of that? The significance is Jesus is not saying that Rome will always exist. He's saying that the beast, however, is resilient. That just when you think the beast is gone, the beast will come back. The beast, political powers unhitched from God, moved out from under submission to God, arrogantly usurped the role of God, demanding allegiance of their subjects, blaspheming God, claiming for himself what rightly only belongs to God, that is worship. See, in Rome, in 96 AD, by the time John was deposited on the island of Patmos, the, emperor, the cult of the emperor, this worshiping of Roman emperors as divine, was fully flourishing particularly through the Roman province of Asia. We've already encountered that, if you remember back to the, the letters to the churches, right? How many of those cities were competing with other cities to build temples to honor the emperor? 
right? City after city after city. They were falling over themselves to, to create temples to worship the emperor, to get into the emperor's good books. In 96 AD, Domitian is on the throne, and, and he has said, he has called people, demanded that the whole world worship him as Dominus et Deux, Lord and God. We also read that the beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. Not conquer them in an ultimate sense, but certainly from a human perspective with physical eyes, it will look like God's people are being conquered, being defeated, being overcome. The beast will wage war and conquer. You see why Jesus wants to warn his people? His people stand in the crosshairs of the beast. This agent of the dragon who will wage war against them, who will conquer them. Here's what we read in verse 9. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. When the state unhitches itself from God, when the state steps out from under God's authority, when the state rejects God, when the state tries to take God's place, usurp God's place, and demand ultimate allegiance, when it demands the worship and submission of its citizens, followers of Jesus will find themselves in trouble. Why? Because as disciples of Jesus, our allegiance is to Jesus. The one who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb who was slain. Daryl Johnson writes this, Disciples do not set out to be troublemakers, but the state will see them as such. For if the state finds its unity in one center, those who live around another center will be experienced as disturbers of the status quo. They may even be experienced as subversives. Jesus warns his followers that they are about to get caught in the crunch as his followers have given their allegiance to God and they cannot give to the empire what the empire demands. Consequently, for some of them, in first century Asia, some of them will go into captivity and imprisonment. Some of them will go to their deaths soon. Jesus calls them, though, to patiently endure and to remain faithful. How? How, in the face of that kind of pain and suffering, in the face of that threat, how do you remain faithful? How do you patiently endure? Well, look at verse 8. By remembering that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. The Lamb who gave Himself for them so that they might have everlasting life. A life that no one can snatch away I want to speak a word to any of you who are with us today online or here physically present who do not yet know Jesus, who have not repented and believed. The Bible does not promise that if you come to Jesus that life will go smoothly, that it will be a bed of roses. And where the church, where Christians have communicated that to you in the past, I ask for your forgiveness. The Bible doesn't tell us that. The Bible does not tell us that coming to Christ will make life easy. That coming to Christ will mean we don't suffer. Quite the opposite. Coming to Christ puts us in the crosshairs of the beast and of the dragon. Jesus here makes it clear that to be his disciple means to suffer. But here's what I want you to understand. Jesus has suffered already for you. 
out of love for you, Jesus lovingly, willingly laid down his life in your place and mine. Jesus let the forces of evil, he let the beast, he let the dragon unload their worst upon him. He lay there and took it. He suffered in our place. Jesus died at the hands of this empire. Jesus died as a political insurrectionist, a rebel, a troublemaker, someone who claimed to be king. He did that out of love for you, out of love for me. He laid down his life, and the beast was as beastly as it could be to him. And he took it out of love. He bore the penalty that you and I rightly deserve. Because the truth is, every one of us, every one of us is a political insurrectionist. Every single one of us have rebelled against God's rightful authority. We have said, I will be my own king. I will be my own queen. I will determine the way that I will go. We have usurped the place of God. We have blasphemed in doing that. And Jesus died in our place for our sin, for our insurrection. So that through repentance and faith, who coming to him and saying, Lord, I turn from my sin. I need you. I put my trust in you. We receive from Christ his grace. We are washed. We are, as we read earlier, without blemish and free from accusation. That can be yours today. I urge you, turn to Christ. Receive from Christ the gift of life, and he will write your name in his book of life. The third and final thing I wanted to do this morning is think with you about the implications of this warning for our lives, to reflect on the implications of this. What does it mean for us today as disciples of Jesus? As Linus famously quipped in the Peanuts comic strip, there are three things I have learned never to discuss with people, religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. That sentiment, at least for the first two things, that we shouldn't talk about religion and politics certainly is alive and well today, but it would seem clear from this passage, I trust you recognize this, that, that a discussion of politics and religion, a discussion of politics and our faith as followers of Jesus is called for. It is very much necessary. Remember, the Revelation is a discipleship manual. It is a manual to help us as followers of Jesus to know how to make our way through this world. It teaches us how to live as disciples in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. A world that is filled with nation states. Uh, a world in which politics plays a substantive role even in our lives here. So the question we need to ask is, how should I live in my particular context for us here today? And unless you're listening from some other place, how do I live as a disciple of Jesus in Canada? In my political context. Now, if you are from elsewhere, if you're living in another country, the, the particular details of these answers may look different. But at the core, the answer is the same for everyone who names themselves a follower of Jesus. First, this text reminds us that our allegiance is to Christ. Paul in Philippians says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different king. 
Our loyalty is to Jesus. Our allegiance is to Jesus. We have committed ourselves to follow and obey Jesus. It matters not what your passport says. What matters is that you are in Christ. Do we realize as followers of Jesus, do we realize as Christians that we have far more in common with a Christian brother or sister who lives in communist China or in Islamic Iran or in Islamic Mauritania or you name the nation, that, that we as Christians here in Canada have more in common with those other believers from other places in radically different political contexts. We have been redeemed by Christ. We have been adopted by the Father. We are actually part of the same family. They are our brothers and sisters. We, have, we, we share that same commitment to be transformed by Christ through the power of His Spirit because of the Gospel. We love Jesus. We worship Jesus. We seek to pour out our lives and live out our allegiance to Jesus. We are citizens of another kingdom. That citizenship takes precedent over everything else. Uh, Daryl Johnson says, allegiance to the state is always secondary to allegiance to the kingdom of God. Yes, we are called to submit to earthly authorities, to be good citizens wherever we are. So long as we can do so, we're submitting to Christ in all things. But allegiance to state is always secondary to allegiance to the kingdom of God. And whenever there is a collision of ways, whenever the earthly kingdom we find ourselves in contradicts the ways of God's kingdom, we obey Christ, we submit to Him, and we bear whatever consequences may come to us. That's why Jesus says here, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity, they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword, they will be killed. We live out our allegiance to Christ, come what may. That's what we are reminded of. Our loyalty is to Jesus. We are citizens of another kingdom. Second, this text reminds us that our hope is in Christ. Our allegiance is to Christ, and our hope is in Christ. Now, I'm a bit of a political junkie. I enjoy following what's going on politically. I read and listen to the news. I, I listen to podcasts and political commentary. I try to stay informed. Now, honesty, maybe it's not always enjoyment. Maybe that's the wrong word because often I find myself frustrated. It, it, sometimes it just, I, I hear and I see what's going on and it seems like complete insanity and, and I, get, I get frustrated. I get hot and bothered. There's times where it just seems like you're watching a train wreck happen and I get frustrated. My boys, I'm sure, could tell you stories. I've heard them complain about my passionate moments from time to time. A few weeks ago, I had one of those moments. And in that moment, I sensed the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Reminding me of what we see in this text. And that is that my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. It's not in a, a particular political party. It's, it's not in a particular political leader. It's not in a particular political outcome, a particular political ideology. My hope is in Jesus. 
I think back to years ago when the, the fires of Quebec separatism were raging here in Canada, and I was, I remember getting anxious about that. I thought, oh, I love Canada. I don't want Canada to rip apart. And you know what? I can, I can at one level feel that, but, but it, Canada is secondary. My hope is in Jesus, not in this nation that I've grown up in, not in this nation that I care about. My hope is in Jesus. I believe that for disciples of Jesus like us who live in a democratic state, that at some level this might even be more complicated than it would be for believers in other places. For a believer in North Korea, where they have no say over who's in charge and what laws happen, it, life's at some level really simple. You just love Jesus, follow Jesus, and you, you face the consequences that come. But for us, we, we get to choose. We get to express our voice politically in voting. And, and, and that can complicate things. Because we have to choose, let's be honest, we have to choose between undesirable options, generally. Always between fallible, sinful leaders. Leaders who may or may not acknowledge God as the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. As followers of Jesus, we, we need to remember this. Yes, there may be certain policies or positions of a particular party or a leader that align in some ways better with the ways of God. We should consider things like that as we participate in the political system. But we should always operate with a healthy suspicion with the knowledge that the dragon works through the agent of this beast from the sea, the state throwing off God's authority, throwing off God from His place as the one who sits on the throne above every other throne. We should always bear that in mind. And here's another question. Are we as followers of Jesus, do we readily affirm where the party or leader that we don't support does good? Uh, do we readily call out the party or the leader we do support where it does wrong? Have we so married ourselves to a particular political party or a particular political ideology that we fail to actually pay attention to what Jesus says? And let me ask this. Are we looking to the state to remedy what ails our world? If Jesus is the hope of the world, then should we as disciples of Jesus not be those who go out into the world and bring that hope, proclaim that hope, flesh that hope out in various ways? Do you know that historically the church has been at the forefront of things like health care, education, caring for the poor? But it's so easy in our political context to, to see those things as responsibilities of the government. And, and when the government fails, we can get mad at the government and shake our heads at the government. But, but should we as disciples of Jesus, Jesus in whom our hope is, should we not be living out as disciples of Jesus, bringing that hope to the world? You know, in Rome in the first century, in, in these early centuries in Rome, infanticide was practiced regularly. Unwanted babies were abandoned at garbage dumps to die, especially girls. And the church, the church would go 
search for and find these abandoned babies and they would take them in and they would love them and they would care for them and they would raise them. Today, for a moment, I just want us to reflect on one political hot-button topic, and that is abortion. I believe abortion to be a great, a great evil of our day. Every day, innocent lives snuffed out. But here's a question for us. What will we do as disciples of Jesus? Will we take in these unwanted babies and love them and raise them? Here's maybe a more difficult question. What about the young moms who are single and frightened? Will we take them in? Will we love them and care for them? Will we be a force for good and for what God wants in the world? Or will we sit back and say, well, I voted for the other guys. They would have done something better. What does it mean for us to live out the reality that Jesus is our only hope, that Jesus is the hope of the world? Michael Wilcock writes this, All whose hope is not ultimately in the blood of the Lamb have no hope except in some human system to which either expressly or by implication they give the blasphemous name of God. We must never forget our hope is in Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the world, not a particular leader. Not a particular party. Not a particular nation. I shared earlier my experience in North Africa where I received no warning. Nothing to help me brace myself for what I was about to walk through. Jesus, in his love and his concern for his followers, provides this warning. He warns them about what they're about to face. A great beast is coming out of the sea. A great beast that is an agent of the dragon who is filled with fury and seeks to destroy you. And you will be caught in its crosshairs. It is about to, wa- about to wage war against you because of your allegiance to me, Jesus says. And he wants us to see. He wants us to see that this beast is not a beast that will be defeated by the right political leader. It's not a beast that will be defeated by the sword. In fact, this beast will rule, will have authority for 42 months. This beast will be a reality until Christ comes and brings history to an end. We will not rid the earth of him, no matter who wins the next election, no matter which party is in power, no matter which political ideology we seek to live out or we find ourselves in, we cannot get rid of the beast. The beast will keep coming back. Daryl Johnson writes these words, the only thing that defeats the beast is the declaration, Jesus is Lord. And living that declaration, even if it costs our lives. So how do we respond to this warning, brothers and sisters? In a word, we worship. We worship Jesus. We worship the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. We worship the lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. We worship Jesus. While all the world around us worships the beast, we declare Jesus is Lord. 
And we worship him with all that we have, with every breath that we take. Amen.